God, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I mentioned that even though this is the qualifications for an elder, got these other verses coming up, it actually describes a mature believer. And everything on this list uh, is something we should all aspire to be uh, and do. The only thing that may and is considered a distinction uh, is able to teach. You know, uh, the deacons don't have to be able to teach, but at the same time as believers, I think each of us should be praying and saying, God, use me to teach others, whether it's through my example, right? Through words of encouragement, to be a blessing, teach your children, and what have you as well. Amen. Now, obviously, we're talking about the distinction in roles here. And here he's talking about the qualifications for an elder. In verse 1, we read, it's a trustworthy statement. If anyone, any man aspires to the office of overseer, which we've seen is synonymous with elder and synonymous with poimen, pastor, uh, elder, uh, pres- presbyteros, you know, uh, overseer, the Greek is episkopos. And each of those have different nuances, but I've said for years here, we believe that elders are pastors, are shepherds, you know, are overseers. Uh, there's elders just that do different things. We read in, later on in Timothy, it talks about those elders that teach uh, or, or rule well and so forth and teach. Uh, elders can have more managerial roles as well because you have to manage your own house well, well or how can you manage the household of God? So deacons are involved also doing the work of managing the household of God and uh, dealing with a lot of the practical things that come up in the fellowship. And he gives a list of the, uh, for the deacons as well. And when we hit that, we'll go quite a bit quicker because we've already covered some of those same exact descriptives in the elders' call. But I want to challenge you and encourage you that this is a picture of a mature believer who is a candidate for an overseer, and this should stretch each and every one of us because we all want to make sure we're constantly, daily, all of us, myself included, being stretched to become more like Christ, amen, and to meet the characteristics here that please God. And he says, it's a trustworthy statement if a man who aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be a doctor or a lawyer. Is that what it says? That's what happens in a lot of churches. A very, very successful businessman. That's who people often appoint as elders. That way they keep people in there that have money or they keep people there that have good reputations. And having a good reputation is actually part of the list, but there's a lot more to that list, this list, including when you put it with Titus chapter one, they must be able to teach and also refute false doctrine and so forth. Verse three, or verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach Meaning there shouldn't be charges against this person of evil. They shouldn't be known to be a person who is uh, under a lot of accusation or even overhanging accusations that, uh, uh, that, that, that they're just not a good guy, you know? The husband of one wife. We covered those things last week. Remember that? We, husband and wife. We looked at various different views. And uh, we settle in this fellowship that he's talking more specifically about a one-woman man when you look at the Greek and when you look at the context and you look at the fact that Paul, if it's saying he must be married, then Apostle Paul could be an elder. Jesus could even be an elder, uh, which makes no sense at all. And we looked at all these different viewpoints, but, or a few different viewpoints, but uh, the best way, I believe, to understand this, and, and many you know, Bible scholars, commentators agree that he's speaking of a man who's faithful to his wife. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean he has to be married. Otherwise, when it says a couple verses later, 
that he must manage his children well. Does that mean he might have to have children? And that's in the plural in the Greek. That means he has to have more than one child. No, not thinking that elders have to have more than one child, but you could press it that way. But he's just saying if, you're, if he's married or even if he's not married, he should be a one-woman man, amen? Shouldn't be a guy that's out there fornicating or a man that's married committing adultery and what have you. And we spent some time on that. And now I'm going to take up the rest of, well, almost the rest of these verses. Temperate. Temperate. He must be temperate. We'll look at that in a moment. Prudent. He must be prudent. God wants us all to be temperate. He wants us all to be prudent. Respectable. Hospitable. Able to teach. I've done a lot of work on that last part, able to teach. And if, we, if I finished this verse today, we wouldn't get out of here in time. So I decided to teach, do that next week. And just look at these next descriptives. Temperate, prudent, respectable, and hospitable. We look at those four. And that'll be enough for the Lord to just challenge us uh, as to what our characters should look like, what we should be, what the Lord calls us to be. We want to be a healthy church, amen? And praise God, what better way? I love these types of teachings. I love uh, one of the favorite things I've ever taught on was 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 10 or 11. We actually went to like 11 or so. And where it talks about adding your faith, these various virtues, you know? And, you know, moral excellence and brotherly love and so forth. Because I love those messages that challenge you as to what we're called to be and stretch us as Christians. Uh, and even if I'm not in a text that might, may not specifically challenge you, I still try to find ways to challenge you so we could grow together. But he calls us next, not only to be, the overseer must not only be above reproach. And by the way, the descriptives after above reproach basically describe what it means to be above reproach. Like if you've, you're a one-woman man, right? You're respectable, uh, you know, you're sober-minded or what have you, temperate, and, and on and on. That describes what it means to be above reproach. So let's look at the first, ne the next descriptive, the first one for this evening, that is on our plate, temperate. An elder, if, if someone's aspiring to be an overseer, they must be temperate. That's what God calls all of us to be, is temperate temperate. And the Greek word there is a word that means to be sober-minded. Temperate. You've heard of the temperance movement, right? To be sober-minded. And uh, it means to be not influenced by wine or alcohol. It's used often in the Greek language of not being imbibed and under the influence, intoxicated, uh, to your, where your mind's affected by alcohol. It's also used in a more general form, of uh, being sober-minded, meaning being a rational person, right? Not given over to excitement that could lead you into some destructive path uh, or something that's unbecoming. He wants us to be temperate. Now, that this is actually translated sometimes sober or sober-minded. In fact, in Titus, another pastoral epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote, he states, older men are to be sober-minded. He's translating the same Greek word. There be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We see many, many times in the scripture that we're called to be sober. You know, many times when people are looking about, at verses that, about alcohol, they'll look for specific verses that talk about not getting drunk, that specifically mention wine or what have you. And I'm like, those are good verses to look at, praise God. But you know, there's a whole bunch of other verses that deal with this subject, and it's about the scriptures that tell, warn us to be sober. Amen. 
You might not find the word alcohol in the, in, in the verse or the passage, but it excludes being under the influence of illicit drugs, uh, you know, mind-altering you know, drugs, uh, marijuana. I used to smoke pot, so don't tell me it doesn't mess with your mind. Okay. Uh, I used to do various drugs, and all the drugs I did, uh, except for probably speed, messed with my mind. Had hallucinogenic type properties or what have you. Even alcohol. I remember, and the Bible says you'll see strange things if you drink. Okay? In the book of Proverbs, strange women and all that. And I remember not even knowing when I was young that alcohol could cause you to hallucinate, having hallucinatory type experiences with it because I drank a lot. Uh, do you guys want elders that are drunks? Would that be good? No. Can you imagine going to elder for counseling and he's just drunk? You just need to treat her better, man. You know, that wouldn't work out so well. Uh, God wants us to be sober-minded. Listen to 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So our minds should be prepared for action. And one thing I know when you're high, your mind is not prepared for action. You just become passive. Or if you become active, because sometimes when you're drunk, you can become active in a very very bad way, very disrespectful way. And being sober-minded, it says, and then he says, set your hope fully, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to be focused on the blessed hope and the big picture that we're going to meet Jesus someday. Each and every one of us will stand before him. First Peter Amen. 1 Peter 4, 7 talks about in light of all, the end of all things, being at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Being high doesn't really help out your prayer life either. 1 Peter 5, 8, be, be, be sober-minded, be watchful, or be sober and be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Can you imagine a herd of, you know, gazelles or water buffalo or zebra? If you got one of those zebras really drunk, who do you think would be the early, easiest prey for, that, for that, that, those lions? In fact, if those lions could get one of them drunk and spike the water hole, right, he'd be in for some business. Be easy, pray. Amen. And Christians who think it's okay to get drunk, first of all, they ought not be deceived. The Bible says, be not deceived. Drunkards will not inherit God's kingdom. Amen. But you're easy, pray for the enemy. And God's called us to be hypervigilant. He's called us to be uh, on a watch, as watchmen, amen, on, on the wall, on the watchtower, being our brothers and sisters keepers, Amen. And drunkenness does not further the interests of God, does not further the kingdom of God. And it's all about self. If I was a drunkard like I was before I was a Christian, it's because I'd be about myself. Because I want to feel this way. But we're not we're supposed to, to, be a, to be Christians. We must take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow Christ. Amen? It's no longer about being selfish and, and doing things for ourselves. Amen? Amen? And I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. A lot of those just came from Peter. This is Paul again who wrote 1 Timothy, and I quoted him already in Titus. He says, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Overseers ought to make sure, and all of us as Christians, that we're sober-minded. Because it equates getting drunk with darkness, night, and being spiritually asleep. Amen? And we're not supposed to be spiritually asleep. We're not supposed to be living in spiritual darkness. We're supposed to be children of the light. And this is especially true when you look at this, this call for eldership here because elders have to be overseers. How many stories have you grieved over? I've grieved over so many stories through the years where mother's drunk or dad's drunk and something happens to the kids. Those kinds of stories are always in the news. Or they go out clubbing and their kids, horrible things happen. Because it's all about partying for a lot of people today. Man, and we, gods have called us to bring up children in Christ if you're a parent. But even if you're not a parent, we're the family of God, amen? We're supposed to be stimulating each other, loving good works, encouraging each other, being examples, amen? I don't know about you, but I need every brain cell I've got, okay? I lost some early on in my life as a non-Christian, and I'm grateful for every dandrate I have that alcohol is not allowed to consume. You start consuming alcohol and getting buzzed even, you start destroying that buzzes because you're destroying brain cells, dandrate brain cells. That's not something the Lord wants you to do. Amen? Amen. Now, it's interesting that God had forbade the spiritual leaders in the Old Testament, the priests, he forbade them from taking strong drink. Leviticus 10.9, you, uh, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink. This is a lasting ordinance for the uh, generations to come. Now, I'm not saying if somebody has a little bit of wine that, you know, some churches preach you can't even have a little bit of wine. I recognize scripturally, because I'm I'm we're biblicists here, that the Bible does allow for a little bit of wine, but a little bit. But what I try to do is try to get people to understand the wine in those days. We have to look at cultural background. And a little bit later in this study, not tonight, but, you know, down the line, weeks or so, we'll do a whole message on alcohol. And I'll get more in depth on that. Because I just want to touch it because I want to look at four things tonight. But let me just say this, is there's no doubt in my mind, uh, and I'll prove it next time together, that they typically in the first century were mixing their, their wine with water. Okay? We're going to see that when I go through that study. And strong drink was often understood to be just straight wine. And that was something that was cautioned against in the scripture. But strong drink, which was just straight wine, even though the Bible cautions against that, now today, it's stronger than it was then. Why? Because you'll see on most wine bottles, they'll say an F word, fortified. Okay? Just realize that's an F word, fortified. And that means they put extra alcohol in it. And people are thinking, well, Jesus turned water into wine, and not that stuff. Okay, not that. And they'll be drunk and they'll be deceiving themselves. And the first Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, don't be deceived. Drunk who's not here of the kingdom and they're not going to end up in heaven. They're going to hell forever because they've deceived themselves into thinking that Jesus was getting people drunk. And I don't think anybody deep down thinks that Jesus was getting people drunk. I don't think they really believe that. But they'll, you got to be careful. You can excuse yourself right into hell. Amen. We've got to be really careful. And I share these things from the heart because I love you guys. And I love Jesus, and we love Jesus, and we want the truth, amen? We want to make sure we're not deceiving ourselves. And millions of professing Christians are deceiving themselves. 
And I know even what I'm saying is not popular. It seems like every time I talk like this, somebody gets upset. I mean, almost invariably. Well, maybe it's not the Sunday crowd. It's not that the people come up to me afterwards, but someone said, they said, man, they wish you wouldn't bash alcohol so much. I hear that once in a while, you know. I just bash getting drunk. If you're not getting drunk, no problem. If you're getting drunk, well, that's, there's no such thing as a drunk Christian. Amen. You can't follow Christ and disobey him at the same time. Could I be cheating on my wife and be an adulterer or a homosexual? And would you call me, oh, Joe's a homosexual Christian now or an adulterous Christian. Does that make sense? No. Well, wow, Joe's a serial killer all this time. We didn't know. He's a serial killer Christian. Wow. No, I wouldn't be a Christian. I'd be a serial killer. And if I was a drunkard, I would not be a Christian because the Bible says, don't be deceived, drunkards will not hear God's kingdom. And we should know this. And most Christians deep down, I think, do. But what you'll see is people will be hanging out and they'll want to be cool, be accepted by the crowd. And look at me, I'm getting drunk. Don't do that. That's just, I'm sorry, that's weak. You know, especially when you know you can cause a brother or sister to stumble when you flaunt alcohol. And that's a whole other thing we're not supposed to do, amen? We're not supposed to flaunt alcohol and cause people to stumble. Now, this is what I think is really interesting. Well, Leviticus, verse 9 and 10, it's just, it says, you must abstain from wine and from fermented drink in Numbers 6.3 as well. Uh, and now, again, when I'm, we've got to get this contextually down. The priests were forbidden strong drink, okay? Uh, biblically speaking, they weren't supposed to be drinking when they were serving, and they were never supposed to be drunk. But I mention this because this is to overseers. This is to leaders too. And there's a special, you know, a strong prohibition against leaders drinking alcohol. Why do you think it would be wrong for leaders to drink alcohol? Because they must what? They, they must lead. They must render judgment, right? Listen to what Proverbs 31 says, the very last chapter of Proverbs it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer. God warns leaders, just like the priest, right? He says here in 31.4 of Proverbs, not for, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer. Why? Because kings have to lead. They have to render judgment. They have to be wise. They have to make right decisions. They have to be in the right mind. Do you know what city in the United States of the thousands and thousands of cities uh, has more, has the highest per capita consumption of alcohol? Anybody know what city that would be? Washington, D.C. That explains a lot. Doesn't it? That explains a lot. I mean, so many politicians are known to just party and go to the bar and get drunk. In fact, we're being told it's not for kings to drink, drink wine nor for rulers to crave beer. But, and by the way, I was just looking recently at, a, according to detox.net, which is an online resource for alcohol abuse and, and treatment, uh, they stayed on that site. And I just looked at this today. I've, I've looked at this before. I just wanted some fresh, fresh facts on this. Washington ranks number one for the percentage of heavy drinkers. Also, a survey done 
phone survey where they called a bunch of people for the CDC, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention's Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. They state that the number one drinking city is, heavy drinking city, is, yeah, same, Washington, D.C. And according to the study they did, 65.9% of adults in D.C. have had at least one drink in the past month, second only to Wisconsin, which is 67.3%. I wouldn't have thought that about Wisconsin. I guess people are freezing to death there or something. I don't know what's going on there. The study also says that 11.1% of D.C. adults are what it labels heavy drinkers, consuming more than two drinks daily for men and more than one drink daily for women. And that's because women can only tolerate about half the alcohol men do. And men will sometimes take women out and say, can, to see if they can keep up, but they're actually getting off about half as much alcohol. They're getting twice as drunk. Then they get taken advantage of. Then there's unwanted babies that are murdered through abortion. You know, most crimes are committed when somebody's intoxicated. Do you know that? I'm going to be preaching the next message I'm going to do in a few weeks or so, so I'm going to kind of mellow out here. But I think it's important to understand some of these facts. The district also topped the list for the highest percentage of binge drinkers, according to this survey by the CDC. Men who have had five or more drinks, four or more for women, or at least on one occasion in the past month, on at least one occasion the past month, at 25% five percentage point levels. Wow. You know, it's a shame because wouldn't we love to vote God-fearing people in the office? But a lot of the politicians are drunkards on both sides of the aisle, liberal and professing conservative. Not all conservatives, not all Democrats either, many of them. But it's interesting when you think about these facts. You know, the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? But it says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to, de which is debauchery, which means looseness. So when people get drunk, you know, there's jokes about when people get drunk, what they'll do when they're drunk because they let their guard down, they let their, their, their inhibitions come out. It's horrible. It leads to debauchery, loose living. But when politicians, the rulers of our nation, which are mostly vote in Washington, D.C., being the drunken capital of our nation, when many of these guys are drunk, it leads to debauchery in their rendering of judgments. That's why it was inevitable when you get a lot of drunkards and so forth, people doing drugs, they're going to make laws that are looser, debauchery, looser and looser. No wonder you have so many criminals running loose and they get their hands slapped because there's not sound judgment anymore. And it's really, really heartbreaking when you see what's going on. In fact, God warns about the drunk priests who are drinking in, the, in Isaiah, the prophet, we read this. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1 and following, Woe to you, or woe to the drunkards. Though, and he talks about those who are laid low by wine. They're laid low by wine. You get defeated, man. Men of God, stand up and be men and don't be overtaken and overcome by alcohol. Amen. Drunkards will be trampled underfoot, it says. These also stagger from wine and reel from beer are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble, listen to this, they stumble when rendering decisions. You want to be a godly parent? Don't be getting drunk. Otherwise, you'll stumble when you're rendering decisions in your family. 
someone who wants to be an overseer, don't be getting drunk. Otherwise, you'll stumble when you're rendering decisions and trying to help those in God's care that God's giving you charge over. He goes on to say, all the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. So you have a bunch of priests in Israel who are supposed to be overseers, watchmen taking care of the flock and they're just getting hammered, man. And they're puking so much there's nothing clean. They're having big, these big drinking parties in the name of God. How heartbreaking is that? How messed up is that? Wow. But when I think of men of God that stand out, I see Daniel. He had an exemplary life, right? There's certain men like in the Old Testament. It's hard to find people without some kind of wart on their track record. But Daniel's one that, and he wasn't without sin because no one was perfect, but Jesus, right? But it doesn't mention his, any sin in his life. You know what it says of Daniel? In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile, defile himself with the royal food and wine. You know what it says of John the Baptist, who was exemplary as well? Luke chapter 1, verse 15, for he would be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Wow. Those are great examples. And I want to encourage you, because I'm telling you right now, I have never seen good things come out of getting drunk. I used to do it before I was a Christian. I've never seen people say, man, we were all drunk, and it's so, we're so glad because all these wonderful things happen to us because we're drunkards. No. You see poverty. You see ruin. You see fighting. You see recklessness. You see destruction. You see destroyed kidneys and livers and organs and On to the next word. Otherwise, we're going to camp out there too long. Next word is prudent. They must be prudent. And the NIV translates that same Greek word in, in 1 Timothy 3.2 as self-controlled. Prudent, self-controlled, which is really good right after sober, right? And this speaks more directly to not flying off a handle, not having an outburst of rage. Uh, Titus 2.2 says, uh, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Same Greek word translates self-controlled. So prudent means to be self-controlled. Um, and it could be used as, been, that word is used in the Greek language in the first century of not being overcome with sexual temptation, you know, which fits with the one woman, man, one who's faithful uh, to his, his wife and what have you. And we're called to be self-controlled. And to be an elder, can you imagine having an elder who's out of control? You know, he's given over to anger and outbursts of rage and screaming and cussing and stuff. Like, we all stop. Who's counseling over there? He's cussing someone out. He's, he's slamming doors. He's threatening to kill the guy if he speaks mean to his wife again. You know, it's like, no, we can't have that, man. Because elders are put in some tough situations sometimes, right? They need to have self-control, which is, by the way, the fruit of the Spirit, amen? One of the, one of the uh, mentions among the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The next word on the list, verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband and one wife, temperate, prudent. The next is respectable. Next is respectable. I thought this one's interesting. It is respectable. Respectable isn't used over and over in the New Testament. I thought it's interesting when it is used, it's used of women's adornment to be, you know, that they must be adorned modestly or they, respectably, you know. So it's like the, for the women thinking, well, man, the women's clothes are dressed, dealt with here. What about the men? Well, that's, you know, some, one commentator was reading and saying, this is the main understanding of this word is that it means to be outwardly respectable, you know? 
And I thought, oh, that's interesting because the men are called to be outwardly respectable as well. Not, uh, they shouldn't be a signpost of rebellion against God, against what's right and what's acceptable. Amen? Which I think is very, very interesting. And it could be applied to behavior. They must have respectable behavior. Uh, that's uh, behavior that's not, you know, outlandish and, and wicked or, or rebellious. Um, now, not to be unbecoming, unseemly, you know, disrespectful. Let's look at the next word. They must be what? Hospitable. Hospitable. You know, what does it mean to be hospitable? Let God challenge you because guess what? I believe the Lord is calling us to be, as a fellowship, more hospitable. This is not only here in Timothy for elders. All of us Christians are called to be hospitable. Now, I want to encourage you in Jesus' name to really take this to heart. Because to be hospitable, you have to go beyond your comfort zone. You know, Jesus says, what better are you than the pagans if you just love your own families? Right? He says, the sinners do that. The heathen do that. But Jesus says to love your enemies. Amen? And what words are related? What English words are related to hospitable? Well, that sound just similar to it. Hospital, right? What's that? Host. Yeah, think of that one. It's a good one, Landell. Host. Uh, hosp, host. I'm not sure if that works, actually, but nice try. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, that's H-O-S-P and H-O-S-T. But there might be a linguistic connection. I've just never seen it. So I did look at the, I'd have to look up the etymology of the host. You know, maybe someone can do that quickly. That's pretty interesting. Uh, but the word hospitable is quite interesting because hospital is connected to it. And the association is actually accurate because what happens at a hospital? They give you a room, right? They give you uh, food and water, right? And, or liquid, they show hospitality. Now they charge you, right? But still, you know what I mean? We're Christians, we shouldn't say and give these, hey, come over to my house and bless you with a good meal. Then say, okay, you owe 45 bucks or whatever it was, you know? But we're supposed to show us, the, the hospital industry is actually deals with what? Hotels. It's connected, right? That's what the hospital industry is. Hotels and hospitals. Hotels give you room, board, food. Well, they'll give it to you. They charge you. So the hospitality we're called to is a bit different than the corporate you know, world where they use those terms, but we're supposed to show hospitality, amen, as Christians. Now, it's interesting because Titus also says this about elders, or Paul says this to Titus in the other pastoral epistle. In Titus chapter 1, verse 8, it says, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In 1 Timothy, those, those widows that were actually qualified to be put on the list of church welfare to where the church could take care of them had to be older than 60 years old, but they also had to meet a bunch of requirements. The church wasn't just to throw away their money when they were being hospitable. Listen to what it says. And is well known for her good deeds. She must be well known for her good deeds, have a reputation of doing good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality. So if a woman didn't show hospitality, she shut her heart, her home, her, her, and, and didn't help people, 
But then she wanted the church to help her. The church was supposed to say, no, you don't qualify. I'm so sorry. But you don't have a reputation for being hospitable. Washing the feet of the Lord's people. She had to wash the feet of the Lord's people. And by the way, that was something that people did to help others because they served one another because they walked around barefoot and they didn't have paved roads. You get crust throughout your toes and everything else. And uh, she must also be helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Wow. You can say, wouldn't the church run out of money real quick if it doled out money to widows that were over 60? Not if you go by the list. Because the ones that would meet that list were those who were truly sincere believers. Otherwise, everybody knock, hey, can you help me out? And they had no reputation for doing all those things. I'm older than 60. I'm a widow. I heard you help widows. That doesn't mean you wouldn't help a widow out who didn't meet these requirements in some other way, right? Or you wouldn't give to her a little bit here and there, but for her to be on a welfare list that was systematic, she had to meet these requirements. But notice what the Lord, this is the heart of the Lord. He wants us to have a reputation, not just elders, but believers in general, of being hospitable. In Romans 12, 13, it says, contributing to the needs of the saints. It's all believers are called to contribute to the needs of the saints. That means you and me, we are supposed to help meet the needs of the saints. Practicing, then he says, practicing hospitality. So notice this. Well, wait, I've shown hospitality before back in 1981. No, it says practicing hospitality. It should be something that we're just about. Amen. We should be practicing hospitality. Now, it's interesting because God wants us to not just have a warm feeling. Oh, it's Christmas time. I feel hospitable. I feel like showing hospitality. God bless you. Merry Christmas. But then you have verbal expressions, but God wants you not to just have affection. He wants you to have action. And he doesn't want you just to have action, helping someone. You could give someone a, a, a room to stay, maybe totally cold toward them. He wants you also to be affectionate. Are you with me? Amen. He wants us to be affectionate with action. He wants us to have action with affection. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. By this we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone with earthly possessions sees his brother in need, but withholds his compassion from him, how can the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word and speech, but action and truth. So, wow, he's talking about holding your compassion from him, your affection, and your action. In James, when he's talking about the nature of true saving faith, he says in chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or and and daily food. They don't have any clothes. They're naked, right? They're, They're skin and bones, man. They have no food. If one of you tells him, go in peace, stay warm and well fed, but does not provide for his physical needs, what good is that? Amen? What good is that? And by the way, we should not be thinking of, yeah, people need to give to me. No, you should be thinking you should be doing this. Amen? That's why the Bible says work with your hands so you can share good things with others. Amen? That's mentality. We want to make sure we're not bloodsuckers either and parasites thinking, man, I'm just going to live off everybody else because the Bible says if someone doesn't work, don't let them eat either, just like the widow. 
So it's not as though God has created some welfare state where he's going to create a bunch of lazy people that are just sponging off everybody else. He also tells us to be responsible. If someone doesn't work, they refuse to work, don't let them eat. Otherwise, you're causing a problem. You've got to be very, very careful and very, very wise about this. True hospitality, then, by the way, you guys, it's more than giving someone a room to stay in for a while or letting them use a shower or giving them some food or something to drink. That's beautiful. That's all important. But God wants more than our outward, you know, expressions. And that's huge because a lot of people don't even get there. But he wants us to be giving. He wants us to uh, invite people not just into our homes, but into our hearts, amen, as Christians. And that's very, very important because what happens is you can say, okay, I'm going to open my home or I'm going to open my wallet or I'm going to, you know, give this person a ride or I'm going to do something like this. But guess what? Man, and, but you know what? Your heart's not in the right place because you're doing it, but you're doing it and you're grumpy about it. Man, I can't believe I have to help this person. <sighs> but praise God, I'm a good Christian. It just doesn't sound right, does it? Well, listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another. Now listen to this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. We're talking about how to show hospitality. In fact, if you look at the name of this message, I didn't just call it 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2b. That's what it is because it's B, middle of the verse we're looking at. Because I thought nobody's ever going to grab that. But I called it how to show hospitality. I thought I'm going to talk about a few things here. But I'm going to do it with drunken witness in more depth when I'm going to show you probably some graphics of ratios of how they mix their water with their wine, so forth like that. So I thought they're going to cover different grounds in this. But you know, I'm going to have something where somebody could actually say, oh, oh, yeah, I'd like to see how to do that more. And so I thought I'd camp out on this just for a few more minutes than the other things. Offer hospitality. Listen to this. This is how you do it. So what does it mean to show hospitality? It means to give of yourself. It means to give of your resources to share with others. But to biblically show hospitality is not to turn around and charge someone. Now, in some cases, if, someone, if you have a room and someone wants to rent it, that's totally fine. But I'm talking about when you're giving to somebody that's down and out for a little while, you know, and you're just calling it total, your hospitality. It's not more, it's, you can love out a brother or sister and, and open up a home for rent. That's great. But we're talking about someone who's down and out and and they're trying to go forward and, you know, they're, 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 you know a, a brother. And one way you show hospitality is to open up things, your home to the people. Open up your home to people to one degree or another. But also that's still not, that's not charge them necessarily, right? I'm talking about when you're showing hospitality, you're not saying, okay, here's the bill. You were here three days. What? Yeah, it's 190 bucks. Yeah, you eat a lot, man. You know? No, it's not just that doing it for free, going beyond the hospital or the hotels but it's also doing it without grumbling. That's important, you guys, because guess what? And try to remember that. Try to remember that. Oh, praise God, I have an opportunity to show hospitality. I remember Joe was talking about this. I've been saying, convicted. I'm like, Lord, help me be more a hospitable person. You're doing it. And all of a sudden, you and the wife are like, when's that lousy person going to get out of here? You know, it's like, no, I'm not saying you're not going to run into the situations where you have to talk about things, right? Because you could be taken advantage of and you're going to be talking about it. But you want to make sure you don't go over the line where you're a whiner and a complainer, where you're praying, you're seeking God about things, amen? Where you're just complaining, you're not seeing God's hand or his providence or his, his direction in things. So you gotta be very careful not to become a grumbler. In Jude, when it talks about those who turn grace into a license, 
It says, they are grumblers finding fault, flattering for the sake of gaining an advantage. And they're devoid of the spirit and, you know, and double all these kinds of things it mentions. We don't want to be grumblers. Now, we want to open not just our hands, you guys. We want to open our hearts up. Amen? Are you with me? This is hard to do. But that's what life is. We're learning to become like Jesus, amen? We're fallen. We've been redeemed. We weren't Christ-like. Now we're being made more and more like Jesus, amen? We're being challenged to be more like Christ, who is the ultimate displayer and, and demonstrator of hospitality, amen? amen. So it's interesting. Uh, well, Guess what? You want to go a step further and not just show hospitality to brothers and sisters in Christ or your own family members. Listen to Leviticus chapter 9, verse 33. When a foreigner, say you got someone from Guatemala, someone from Mexico or wherever, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Wow. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If there is a poor man among your brothers within any of the gates in the land, now it's a poor man, and the Lord your God has given you, then you are not to harden your heart or shut your hand from the poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him whatever he needs. And it's like, oh, we have gatherings and so forth. And as a fellowship, do you just invite people that are just, you know, healthy and strong and have money? And wow, that would be showing favoritism. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Wow. He says, although they cannot pay, repay you, you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Wow. Wow. You invite people that you might not normally invite. You're like, you know what? I want to invite people that might not be invited somewhere and open up my home to everybody, not to just certain people. And then guess what happens? The Lord repays you in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Now, what does that look like? Amen? Looks way better than whatever you threw. I can guarantee that because the Lord will not be outdone. Amen? Wow. And we need to open our houses up and our homes up and, and reach out to people. My daughter Holly was just sharing with me uh, uh, two weeks ago or so. She goes, Dad, remember? She's just reliving the moment when she was going to Cal State University and that was a time when the Muslims were considered very dangerous in our country. And some of them are, for sure, no doubt about it. You know, some of them aren't at all. And Muslims, and not just Muslims, but you go to the Middle East, in those areas where a lot of the Muslims are, and Jews and so forth, there's a lot of hospitality. It's a very part, big part of their culture. And she wanted to witness to this guy. I think he was from Kuwait. And I think he was a Shiite Muslim, if I remember right. And we got together and... I think we went to Robert Severin's house. And we spent hours there feeding him and just talking to him, encouraging him, sharing the gospel with him, you know, just showing him hospitality. And here we're thinking, no, he's going to probably be radically offended because we're going to share Jesus with him. And we did share Jesus with him. Now Jesus is the only way. And he, how, how Muhammad's a false prophet and everything. 
You know, guys get radically offended, but hey, we're to love them enough to tell them the truth. But she shared with me a couple weeks ago, she goes, Dad, you know what's amazing about that? She shared some details about that, just out of the blue. She said, Dad, you know what he said? He goes, he said he was blown away because he's been in the United States for a while at that point. He said no one had ever invited him over their house. Nobody had ever cooked for him. And keep in mind, they know what hospitality is more than a lot of Americans in their culture. And he said he was blown away by all the love that was shown him. And he said, and I remember this part. She said, I felt a peace there that I'd never felt before amongst the people that were there. There was just a rightness, he said, about all the people. Well, I'd seen the peace of the Holy Spirit, amen. And, and, and he goes, yeah, and your dad, he talked to me for hours. And I can't believe he spent that much time with me. And I'm like, good, I thought he was probably really ticked off at me. He might bomb me later or something, just being honest. You know, I didn't know, you know. But uh, he was actually, in, so when you show people love, strangers, right? He was tripping out. Holly was more expressive than I'm able to be about that moment as how he described the peace that was in the house with the different believers there. He wasn't a Christian, but he was seeing the peace of God, something he'd never seen in any Muslim home because people were showing him love. And so we need to, we need to take some risk at times, right? And, and, and uh, trust the Lord. But what if I help somebody and it wasn't, that Muslim cut off my head? Praise God, you know what? If I die trying to help people, praise the Lord. What a way to go out, amen? amen. That's much better than, better than being drunk when you die, right? Now, uh, so whether it's, you know, you might reach out to a young couple in the fellowship or an older couple or a widow or anybody that, you know, just reach out to one another. Ask people out for lunch. Pay for the lunch, you know. Bless them in certain ways. You see somebody in need, that's a brother. At that point, you definitely want to say, you know, how can I help? You know, how can I be an encouragement to them? And you need to pray about it and use wisdom. Because you drive by people that have signs and want your money all the time, but they refuse to work. A lot of times they're on drugs. They're going to go buy alcohol. And that's hard to navigate. I've taken people up on that at times and said, and let them know, hey, let's go grab, I just did it recently. Hey, let's, uh, my wife and I just bought, you know, a lady, uh, I think we went to Oregon a couple weeks ago. Now I think about it and we brought her in and got her some food, you know. Sometimes they don't want it. They just want the money. And it's like, they're hungry, but they don't. And I'll give a little because a lot of times they're, they're abusing drugs. So you want to be wise as well about these things. Amen? And by the way, Jesus is the ultimate one, as I mentioned, who shows hospitality. Right? I mean, think about it. Both physically and spiritually. By the way, Jesus says, I go to where, prepare, way to prepare, prepare a place for you, right? My Father's house, there are many mansions or dwelling places. If we're not so, I'd have told you. He's preparing a home for us. Amen? He gives us the bread of life, his body, amen? He gives us the water of life, amen? He gives us the, the, the meat of the word and the milk of the word, amen? Spiritually, and he provides all our physical needs according to his riches and glory. And Jesus said to us, who he's blessed in so many ways, each and every person here has been radically and wonderfully blessed by Jesus, myself included. Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. Jesus also said it's better to give than to what? Than to receive. Wow. And he motivates us. He motivates us to show hospitality. When he said to invite, you know, the blind and so forth and to your, you know, your banquets, 
he says, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That should motivate you to show hospitality, amen? How about Proverbs 19, 17? This should motivate you. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the poor. Oh, wow, sorry. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. If you help the poor, you're lending to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. That's Proverbs 19, 17. Matthew 10, 42, listen to this. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, says Jesus, to one of these little ones, because he is, he is my disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. God will reward you for showing hospitality. You should be motivated. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, I love this. Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if you just give a little bit, you're going to reap just a little bit. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Now I know the word faith teachers like to use that for giving money. So give some money and then God will give you a lot more money back if you give somebody their ministry. And they abuse that text. I'm not saying God won't, if you give financially, God won't bless you financially. But you can't say that's the way it always works. Because I read the text, a scripture they abuse often, like Luke 6.38. And Jesus isn't talking about finances all right here. here. There he is talking about finances. But the way you reap could be to your spiritual life. And by the way, if I'm blessing people, honestly, this is how I feel. If I'm blessing people, I'd much rather be blessed spiritually by Jesus than financially. Because I already know he's going to take care of me financially. I've never seen the, the, the righteous begging for bread. Amen. That's what the scriptures say. He'll meet all our needs according to his riches and glory. Amen. I already know we're going to take care of us financially. I want to know that, praise God, I can give to his kingdom and he's going to grow me up to become a greater child of his. And I'm going to enjoy the, the fruit of the spirit and the love of his grace and so forth. And that's what's in view when Jesus says give and it'll be given to you. That's what's in view. He's talking about mercy and loving your enemies. And after he talks about showing mercy and loving your enemies and that, so you be like your father, the most high God, he says this, give and it will be given to you. A, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, we pour it into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He's talking all about mercy there and love. So man, that's neat, man, because you show people love, guess what? God's going to bring it back to you. That's powerful, man. That's beautiful. Pressed down, shaken up, you know, pressed down, shaken up, and overflowing. I love Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget the work, your work, and the love you have shown for his name as you have ministered to the saints and continue to do so. God doesn't forget that, man. You minister to the saints. You minister to the foreigners. You minister to your neighbor. You love even your enemies. God doesn't forget that stuff. Oh, this should motivate us too. Guess what? When you're showing hospitality, you may be showing hospitality to an angel. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Wow. I don't know, man. If, there's, if, I'm, if I'm helping someone out and showing hospitality to them, part of me is going to like want to figure out if it's an angel or not. I want to know, but hey, Lord. Remember Abraham? Those three angels came. Some were going to go in the Sodom and Bills, and he's entertaining angels, man. You're entertaining angels unaware. I've met a couple people street witnessing on the streets claiming to be angels. That's, I've talked about that before. I won't get into that. It's kind of crazy. 
But you know what? You're not just ministering possibly to angels. You're also ministering to blessing Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 42, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and this is on the day of judgment when Jesus judges the nations, and he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He says, he says I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And he says, conversely, for those on the right, those sheep that have that when I was thirsty, you gave me some drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you gave me something. And they're like, when? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, by the way, to brethren are the sheep on the right. Some people say, when you help anybody, you're doing it to Jesus. No, we're the body of Christ. And he says, what you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. Because when Paul was Saul and he was having Christians killed, what did Jesus say to him when he confronted him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Because we're the body of Christ. And I want to make sure that I'm blessing Jesus. And I know if I bless my brothers and sisters in Christ that are truly brethren, I'm blessing Jesus. Because we're his body. Do good to one another. And the Lord will not forget it. And you'll be repaid. And guess what? You're actually blessing him. And on Judgment Day, you'll hear in that same chapter, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? Now, a word of caution. Don't cast your pearls before swine. The Bible also talks about that. Amen? It says, Jesus says, they ask you one mile, go two mile. But he also says, don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and rend you or tear you up. Don't give that which is holy to the dogs. So what am I saying? You need to use discernment. Now let's apply it to your life briefly as we wind down here. We must use discernment. I mean, if, you, if your husband and you empty your bank account to help somebody, then guess who you're hurting? Your wife and kids, amen? amen. So you gotta use wisdom. Your wife's like, we can't pay the bills. Uh, the kids, there's no clothes for them. Uh, well, I wanted to help this sister over here. But you have a family as well, Amen. So you have to be wise, amen? You have to be wise. Also, if you're a husband and you invite someone into your house and then you leave your house because you work and then that somebody's a male and they're with your wife, the Bible says abstain from all appearance of evil. Don't put something before someone that causes a stumble and you don't know this person very well. That could be very deadly or that could be very disastrous. So you have to be very careful to think things through, amen? And it says if they, won't, they refuse to eat or refuse to work, as I mentioned earlier, don't let them eat. So you could be giving somebody who's constantly just living off your work parasitically. That's not good either, okay? That's, that's not good for you, and it's not good for the kingdom because it misuses God's money. It's not good for the person that you're enabling either, amen? But when we use our discernment, we have to be wise and prayerful. So I'm encouraging you guys, don't just willy-nilly it. Say, God, give me a heart to give. 
First of all, I don't feel, honestly, I don't feel the problem is with most Christians that they overgive. I feel the problem is most Christians aren't, we aren't generous enough at times. So first you must say, Lord, help me be generous. Help me to be more Christ-like. Help me to part from my money more easily, recognizing that it's all yours. But help me be wise about it as well, amen? But also help me to be discerning as I do give. Because guess what? If you give to those who will misuse and abuse, and then you're not able to give to people who have legitimate needs, who truly want to work and do good. Or maybe somebody can't work and you're trying to help them, but you can't help them because you've helped someone else that is using your money on drugs. That's not good. But we have to realize, brothers and sisters, it's your duty, my duty, our duty, to love one another, to help one another, to encourage one another. Amen? You know why they allow churches for many, many years to be, and they still do, we'll see how long that lasts, to be tax-free? Because they realize socially how much good these churches were doing in the communities in helping people that were in need. Now you have a bunch of churches or a bunch of ministries where they're all about like Kenneth Copeland, you know, and, you know, these TBN groups. Yeah, they're all about taking your money. So we wonder how long that will last. We want to make sure we remain one of those churches that gives, amen. We want to make sure our characters are free, as it says in Hebrews, from the love of money. What's your character like? We want to make sure our characters are Christ-like and we follow our master who is the ultimate giver, amen. What's God like? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Amen? Amen. So it's very important, you guys, that we have as a goal as, our, as Christians, brothers and sisters. I want to challenge you. Okay, let's put some flesh and blood on this. Let's have as a goal to be Christians that are known here at Blessed Oak Chapel to show hospitality. Can we do that? That... Whether, whether you're going here or you're listening by live stream, you're listening through the internet or, uh, or, or I should say, you know, somebody even shared this with you, wherever you're at, God calls us all as Christians to be giving, amen, and to be wise about it as well. So I just want to challenge you today to make sure, and it's important to, to be wise as to what the scripture says happening, wise in regard to spiritual warfare, wise in, uh, in regard to eschatology, where everything's headed, wise in regard to discernment and warning about false teachers, wise in walking holy and living a holy life. But part of that whole thing, it all goes together, is being Christ-like and loving and giving and caring for one another, amen? So let's make sure we do that as believers. And what a great time of year, amen, Christmas time to show hospitality. I want to challenge everybody here to go out of their way somehow, somehow this month and show hospitality beyond what you've typically shown. Can we do that? Let's all try to show hospitality in the month of December in ways, and I'm thinking right now, okay, Lisa, let's do this. We're going to do it. All of us, you know, uh, find a way to show hospitality more. Maybe you find somebody who's in need, you know, you just put a gift that they don't expect on their front porch. Or maybe, you know, turkey day is already past, Thanksgiving. But there's all kinds of ways we can help people, amen? And then let's try to make it a practice that we just, out of our abundance, that we give. But Joe, you don't understand. I don't have abundance right now. I'm struggling. A lot of us are struggling at times, right? Paying down cards or what have you. But remember that widow? When Jesus drew attention to her? And she gave just a mite, which was hardly anything at all. 
But in Jesus' eyes, he's God in the flesh. He sees it. And he said he, she gave it more than everybody else because she gave out of her poverty. Amen? So even if we're struggling, there's still ways we can give to others. Don't think, you know, I'll become giving when I get rich. You know, that doesn't really work. You know, the richest people they found in the churches give the least amount percentage-wise of their income, typically. Not always, but that's historically been a reality. It's the people that daily just live for the Lord, that give to his work, and that's how the kingdom typically flourishes. God will use some people with money. Thank God he does, but he, he wants us all to give. And I love what Paul said to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, they gave pretty good guys. And Paul was thankful for their gift because the church in Jerusalem was very poor. And if you look at the history of the church in Jerusalem, all these non-believers came, Jews, that got saved on the day of Pentecost. And now you had all these believers staying there and the work wasn't there and everything else. And they created a crisis. And I don't have time to get into that crisis other than to say, guess what? Down the line, that church was still struggling to degree, degree and Paul brought money to them for the church at Corinth. But then in 2 Corinthians, by that time, the Corinthians weren't so hot on giving anymore to, to help the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul mentions Macedonia, how they were an impoverished church, but they gave beyond their means as an example. And that reminds me when I think of that story of the widow's might. So we may not have as much to give as the next person, but we can still give from what the Lord's given to us, amen, and be a blessing to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And have you noticed this whole message? I haven't talked once about giving to the church, Blessed Hope, the offering. It's not what this message is about. I hardly ever preach about that. I should preach about that more. I need to preach about that more. We just had the elders meeting, how I don't preach about that, you know. I brought it up, not them. They didn't say, Joe, you don't preach about this. I said, you know, we can't. Sometimes we're looking at our bank account going down right now because lean years, right? I'm like, man, we don't talk about giving much at all, you know. And that's because when I do talk about giving, this is kind of message I give. Give to one another. Bless those in need. Help each other. Amen. But of course, yes, I'm going to throw in, remember, on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, they, and they got together, they gave, to the, 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 they gave to the work of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 16, we read that and also talks about the church of Galatia. But my encouragement in this message is give of your life, amen? Be hospitable, show hospitality, help people, love people as just a way of your Christian life, amen? And let God bring you beyond. Can I challenge you to the new year's coming up, right? to let this be an area that we all grow in, myself, all of us included, amen, that we grow in. Can we all try to do that and say, Lord, I want to be more of a giving person? I'm not talking financially. We talk about time. Give your time. You say, I don't have much money at all. Give your time to the work of the Lord, amen? Your talent, your gifts. Man, praise God. I love it when the worship team comes up here and I can tell they've been practicing. They're seeking the Lord and it's just beautiful. Time, talent, and your treasure, amen? Give your treasure unto the Lord as well. Do it all for him. And guess what? You'll never in heaven say, man, you know what? I was just too giving of a person down there. You'll never think that. I can guarantee that. <laughs> Amen? I love you guys. Can we all rise? Wow.